Welcome back to the Jordan Syatt Mini Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I've got an amazing episode for you today with Alex Viata, the owner of Complete Human Performance. We already did a first episode all about zone two cardio and the benefits of that, but we got so many questions about zone two cardio and just heart health in general and improving your heart rate and your resting heart rate and all the aspects of zone two cardio and the different types of cardio you can do. We just got so many questions. I was like, you know what? I got to bring Alex back on to talk about that. So we did an open q and I got thousands of questions on my Instagram, and we didn't answer anywhere close to all of them, but we did answer a bunch, and I think you're going to like this episode a lot. Make sure you listen the whole way through. We cover a ton in this episode, and I really think it's going to help you and your training and your health. So with that being said, I'm going to stop talking. Actually, I am going to say, if you haven't joined the Inner Circle yet, you can do that right now. We have a brand new app update. It is insane. The response has been huge. Thank you to the, all, all the Inner Circle members who have said something. It's just been it's been a huge project and an, a massive undertaking, and the response has just been overwhelming in every amazing way possible. So if you want to join the Inner Circle, get access to the new Inner Circle app, you can do that at the link in the show notes. And now with all that being said, let's get into the episode with Alex. Mr. Alex Viata, we are live. How you doing, man? Well, good, man. Good. I appreciate you. Uh, well, I'd say I appreciate you inviting me back, but it's not like we haven't been chatting on a weekly basis anyway. Oh, yeah. So so here, we'll start with this. Could you just tell everyone where they can follow you just at the beginning, and then we'll get into that as well? Like, if they don't follow you already, sure. which they should, everyone who's listening, if you don't follow Alex, make sure you do. Where can you where they, Where can they follow you, Alex? Instagram, alex.viata, last name V, is in Victor, I-A-D-A. Um, mostly informational content up there, sometimes the occasional uh, unhelpful uh, motivational meme, but otherwise it's, uh, <laughs> that's it. I do weekly Q&As too, so, you know. I know the weekly I know Q&As are, are very educational. I love watching those. I, awesome. Even like, there'll be like 50 short clips and I'll watch through every single one. <laughs> so I, 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 it's, I'll spend like 30 minutes just watching it. It's super wow. educational. Um, for everyone who, who doesn't know, Alex and I have already done a previous podcast. I'll put the link in the show notes. We discussed a lot of the zone to cardio. We discussed all of the different zones. Alex, Alex gave a, a really great overview of what all the different zone trainings mean. And if you're, if you're not really sure what they, what each zone stands for or what it encompasses, or if you want to understand more uh, about zone two, make sure you listen to that episode first. Uh, in this episode, I got a bunch of questions. I, I put up a, a Q and a box on my Instagram, basically saying any questions you have about zone two or heart rate or cardio or any of that, ask me. And then Alex and I will discuss it here. So that's what I'm going to, talk to you about Alex right now. But first, actually, before I even get into it, I would, dude, I was just down in the gym doing uh, my upper. So I did the sprints that you programmed for me, which went really well. And then uh, I was doing my upper body push and there's a guy next to me and, and he put 225 on and he put 25 on the bench press and he, yeah. he goes and immediately it just goes to his chest and he can't get it off. And oh, so oh. I think my, my buddy had called me, but my, my buddy Mike had called me when I finished my sprints. So I was on the phone just getting ready for my upper body push and I'm not paying attention to anything going on around me. And I'm just hearing like this, like some faint yelling in the background. <laughs> so like, I like wasn't really paying attention and all of a sudden it starts to get louder and louder. And this guy, I think he was from France because he was like, Help me! Help me! <laughs> <laughs> What's up? 
Did he have it clipped or something? Like he couldn't so, dump so, it? Yeah, he, he had the clips on, so it couldn't fall off. And yeah. and so then I was on the I was like, oh shit. So I threw my throat phone down and I went over and I helped him bring it up. He was like, Oh, thank you so much. Oh, and like, <laughs> he was like, I was like, man. And I told him, I was like, you gotta take the clips off. And I showed him yeah. next time, like just push the weights off. But I, I posted that story on my Instagram and people were like, I had no idea. I just thought you were supposed to keep the clips on. It's like, no, take the clips off. It could save your life. Yeah. Yeah, it, you know, it's 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 really funny because the whole clip thing, like, I'll use them for squats. Just so, yeah, like, yep. when I'm walking out, you know, shift the bar, there are definitely times to use it, but bench press, never. Even if yeah. I've got a spotter, like, it's never. If, if I'm, if, if it's going so much that the, the plates are falling off without clips, like, I'm doing something wrong. That is Exactly. The, yeah. <laughs> Lucky you were there. Like, were there many other people in the gym? There was no one else in oh. the, no one else in the gym. It was, and it was, it was lucky that I wasn't doing the sprints that you had programmed because if I was doing the sprints, I had my headphones on, I wasn't paying attention. Like, I was just going hard on those sprints. I wouldn't have heard it. Like, there's no way I would have heard that. It was lucky. Had I had just finished the sprints, I was getting my upper body push going, and my buddy Mike called right at that time. It was super lucky. So it was funny because he told me that he 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 was recording that bench press set. I'm yeah. trying to get him to send me the video just so I can share, but I can also understand why he wouldn't. <laughs> like it literally might go viral with the like that. Help me, help me. <laughs> like, like that. That alone <laughs> would make it go viral because it was hilarious. But uh, <laughs> thank God he's safe and fine. But I, I'm gonna see if I can get him to send it to me so I can use that as part of like an educational video on Instagram. It's really a good lesson too. Like that is a real, real way to get yourself in trouble. I got in trouble like that once. When I first started lifting, it was uh, one of these two-floor gyms, and the downstairs was usually empty. I was working, so like we were working during the day in New York. So I would get up at four in the morning and go there at four thirty, and it was deserted down there. And I literally got the bar stuck on my neck. Shut up! Oh my yeah. god! Yeah, yeah, and I got extremely lucky. The same kind of thing. There just happened to be somebody coming downstairs who had like left a water bottle behind or something. And wow! Right there, trying to get it off. And same thing. I had it clipped. It wasn't a lot of weight. But it was enough. I couldn't get it moving, and he pulled it off. And that, that was a close that's call. crazy. Yeah, that's scary. I remember, <laughs> I remember my because I trained at Westside for a little while, yeah. and and when you train there, like you're training with with powerlifting gear. So I, it was my first time ever wearing a bench shirt. Yeah. And and I had never worn a bench shirt. And for anyone who doesn't know, if you look at like a lot of those, the if you think of the cliche powerlifter. You could even Google search powerlifting bench shirt. Just Google that and you'll Google Google image a picture of a guy or, or a woman. But it's mostly men who and it's probably from like 10, 15 years ago, at least where their their arms are just out in front of them like T-Rex arms. And it's because when you wear a bench shirt, it's very difficult to actually pull your arms back. It, it it forces your arms inward and you actually need a lot of weight in order to press the bar down to your chest when you wear this type of a shirt. It's very difficult. It's uh so my first time ever ever wearing a bench shirt, I put 225 on, which I couldn't even get it down with this with this uh it was like a super duper phenom bench shirt. It was like my first time ever wearing one. It was ridiculous. I put yeah. 225 on. I couldn't even get it close to halfway down and at about halfway down, I came out of the bubble and I it like came straight towards my face. Yep. The bar just went straight towards my nose bridge. And thank God this guy spotted me, Tom from Ireland, just snatched the bar right before it hit yep. my face. Like that would have been, it, it literally might have killed me, but like yep. if not killed me, it would have massively dis disfigured my face. There, yeah. There's some real injuries and deaths with, with benching every year. 
Yeah, exactly. You see the people who, um, you know, use the, the false grip on it as well. Oh, man. Yeah. Hands up. Like, oh, God, guys. Yeah. Like, wrap your thumbs around the bar, please. Well, and it's like, you know, it, it's always hard telling these stories, too, because you don't want to discourage people from barbell lifting. You don't want people to be afraid of it. But it's like, hey, look, like anything else, just proper precautions. Like, yeah, you take it seriously and something bad things won't happen to you. I mean, you Correct. know, you can. You can injure yourself doing the cables too hard, but yeah. so just be smart about it. But yeah, it's, it, and it, it, you know, it is, it's, it's usually like an ego related thing or somebody, you know, filming a one rep max or, you know, like I said, gear lifting is another story, but just like proper precautions guys. Yeah. All right. So, so we're going to dive into the zone two stuff. Got a lot of questions, but before we go into the questions I got, like I told you before we started recording, you and I were both sent this tweet by Andrew Huberman, Huberman, I'm not sure. And and he's blown up recently. And, and from what I can tell, he's a very smart guy. I have nothing. I want to make that very clear. There's nothing against him at all. From what I've seen, he's very smart and I actually like a lot of his work. Um, he did make a tweet about Zone 2 that I think was a little bit sensationalistic, to say the least, a little bit uh, fear-mongering in some ways, and I wanted to go over that with you. Um, so, and I'm just gonna read it directly from his tweet. He said, during a health symposium at Stanford Med, I learned from a cardiologist colleague that even if we get our 180 minutes of zone two cardio per week, the benefits are largely or entirely erased by sitting for more than five hours per day. The solution is standing a one-to-one -one ratio with sitting in three to four 10-minute walks per day. And the issue that I have with this is he goes, the benefits are largely or entirely erased, right? It's like as though 180 minutes of zone two cardio per week is now, it's as if you just didn't do it at all, which I want to get your take on that because to me, I could see so many people in the world being like, well, what's the point of me doing anything if it's just going to be erased by my job or by sitting, you know? Exactly. Exactly. So, and I'm just going to give my perspective on it first. Um, I think, first of all, the, the quality in that is there's absolutely research that shows if you are sedentary for longer periods of time, even if you're otherwise healthy, there's an increase in all-cause mortality. And little things, there are little interventions, and even he cited some of these things, saying that, look, if, like, let's just say after you have lunch or after you have a sugary drink, getting up out of your desk and walking for 10 minutes can actually help improve the insulin response to what you take in. It can reduce blood pressure. It has all kinds of other benefits. I don't think there's any doubt and any disagreement from any of us or anybody in the field that spending a little bit of time periodically throughout the day, getting up, stretching your legs, walking can be a massive, massive help. <clears throat> so I agree with that. Um, but the problem is to make the claim that you erase the benefits of 180 minutes of zone two work per week, you'd have to show that all the known benefits to, you know, obviously your, you know, cardiovascular health and nutrient partitioning and, you know, uh, vascular elasticity and all of that, you would have to show that all of those don't count for anything if somebody is overly sedentary otherwise, as if they're not conveying any benefits at all. So that is an extraordinary claim. You're mm. basically the extraordinary claim that, this work, these benefits that we know about are definitively erased. Now, he says reduced. I'll agree with that. And we could talk about that in a second. But he says or erased. <clears throat> Looking at the data, even the studies that he posted below, because somebody said, hey, do you have any citations? He posted a few. The very first one confirmed that there is a dose-dependent reduction in the benefits of exercise the longer you sit. So in other words, in healthy populations of, let's say, 
average activity levels. You're not sedentary all day. You walk a little bit, you sit a little bit, you move a little bit and all that. 180 minutes of zone two cardio reduces all cause mortality from cardiovascular and other related illnesses by 10 to 12%. That's significant. That's significant, yeah. As populations get more and more sedentary, though, that 10 to 12% starts to reduce. In other words, as they mm. spend the rest of the day sitting, that benefit goes from 10% down to 8% to 6% to only about 5.5% reduction. Wow. If you are otherwise completely sedentary, like sitting for eight to 10 hours a day, that's that's significant. And you say already at that point, wow, I mean, being, being that sedentary can even... <clears throat> I can work as hard as I want, but if I'm extremely sedentary, I'm still at greater risk. So the the issue is, no matter how sedentary you are, that difference, that improvement, that 5% reduction in all-cause mortality, that is maintained. So it's not erased. It's reduced, but there is still a benefit. If you hadn't done those 180 minutes, you mm -hmm. would still be at greater risk. There is a massive, massive difference between saying this reduces the benefit and this erases the benefit. Correct. And that's that's where it really, really bothered me because there are the lesson here should be, hey, look, you're doing everything right. You're doing all this work. You're doing everything else. Did you know that if you're otherwise completely sedentary, getting up, standing and walking around for a total of another 15 minutes per day increases the benefit mm. from five to 12 percent? That's it. That is a proper takeaway. And my problem is. By inserting that little caveat, it suddenly becomes this almost like nocebo, almost sensationalist sort of thing. And you're telling people it doesn't matter if you exercise or not if you're really sedentary. That's the wrong takeaway. It's the and worst. It's the it's, worst message you could make for the population. Yeah. And it's, you know, I, I get sometimes in tweets in short form, you know, you, you lead with a headline and then follow up with the nuance. Yep. But in something like this, it was just the insertion of one or two words there where you change the meaning completely and the message at the end of the day is completely wrong because he listed a couple citations down below. I read every single one of those studies. There we go got the a dogs. dog in the background. It's all right. <laughs> he warned me before the recording. We might hear the dog. It's okay. No worries. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, I have to wait for these guys to stop. But yeah, you know, when you when that happens, when you when you make something so absolute like that, um, you do you send the wrong message, and you're basically people internalize the takeaway. People internalize yeah. that one statement, and that's that's the problem. And I think it did a, I think it did a lot of disservice to general health right there. Yeah, I agree. And and you know, so there's a couple of things that I also want to say about it in terms of in terms of we could talk about starting with the way he structured the tweet, right? And, and I actually wanna go into actually something a little bit more practical after that, but he said the benefits are largely or entirely erased. I think based on what you just said and what I think common sense tells us, it's it, they're not even largely erased, it's they, they could be significantly reduced, right? Like that would be a more accurate statement, right? And I would have nothing wrong with that. Um, but also it's to the effect of, instead of saying, hey, this is going to, significantly reduce it how about we talk about what can you do to improve it like what can you actually do to improve like let's take instead of just the negative outcome how about we focus on what you can do to positively improve your outcome now he did at the end talk about here's the solution standing one-to-one -one ratio is sitting and three to four 10 minute walks per day i love the three to four 10 minute walks per day because i think that is massively underestimated people very much they they often 
think walking doesn't do anything. They think a 10 minute, what's a 10 minute walk going to do, but you do three to four, 10 minute walks in a day. That adds up to 30 to 40 minutes of extra walking. That's, that's yeah. huge. But what, here's what I have. A, I have a question for you. Standing is standing still that much better than sitting. Like, and for me, I asked the question because you're, you're just standing. Like, I don't, I don't see that much of a benefit in terms of cardiovascular health at all, but also in terms of you look at a lot of people with standing desks and they've got chronic back pain, chronic knee pain, chronic joint issues. I'm like, is that really better than if you just, Hey, you know what, sit at your desk, but make sure you get up and take three to five, 10 minute walks per day, which what, what do you think? Am I wrong? And, and I tell me what you actually think. You're absolutely right. In fact, um, because a, what a lot of the research said, and in fact, interestingly enough, at least two of the citations he put up there actually showed almost no difference from standing whatsoever. Interesting. So it was walking and movement and not just standing that made a difference. Now, there are, I think one of the biggest issues that we get here, though, is, and I'm sure anybody who works for OSHA who's listening to this right now is going to love this part. Most people have terrible, terrible desk setups. Mm. And, you know, I, I know that's, so, so and, and I guess the reason for saying that is sometimes people when standing say at the end of the day, they feel like they have better posture, they have more energy and everything else. It's because when you're standing, yes, there are certain costs to standing, like you said, lower back pain. You know, you're certainly wearing the wrong shoes for it most of the time and anything else. But a lot of that is simply because they're not sitting in an unfavorable position. So the biggest benefit to standing, really, if you want to get the same effect, get yourself a desk chair and a desk setup that actually fits your back, that allows for proper posture, allows for proper hand position. You know, I'm not even talking about like text neck or any of that, you know, fear mongering. Right. Well, basically just saying, you know, make sure you're able to sit comfortably, make sure you're able to sit upright, you know, your hands are upright and, you know, your wrists are properly extended. All of that kind of stuff helps get rid of a lot of the issues caused by orthopedic issues caused by uncomfortable sitting. Standing doesn't really make much of a difference. I would rather somebody sit and then do three to four 10 minute walks a day then mm. and for six hours and maybe only go for one because that standing does have a cost. It, it gets tiring after a while. It's tiring on your feet. It's tiring on everything else. I would say make devote that time to actual movement rather than simply standing. That's my that take. Make, that makes sense to me because I actually tried for a while doing my podcast standing. I, I wanted to try, you know, if I'm talking about this, I want to have practical experience with it. So I was like, you know, I'm going to try the standing desk. I'm going to do that. But I, it got in the way of my actual training, like me standing up for two, three, four hours straight. By the time I wanted to go lift lower body, my back was aching. Or if I wanted to go on a run, my back hurt. And I'm 30 years old and I have no history of, of, of serious back pain. Like in terms of just, I haven't had really chronic back pain. I had one issue with deadlifting. That, that was a problem, but otherwise like, I have no real issues with back pain, you know, and, and for whatever reason, you know, standing for two, three, four hours at a time, it puts so much stress on my joints. I feel way better during my training. If I just sit down doing the podcast or sit down at my desk work and then I go get my training in. Yeah. You know, I mean, anybody who's, you know, worked a, worked a service job or anything when they're on their feet, like I bartended for quite a while and, you know, in between lunch rush and dinner rush, there would sometimes be three, four hours where you're not really going to sit. You know, it was still a restaurant. There was stuff to do. I was just standing most of the time and had some of my worst issues with orthopedic pain and discomfort and everything. And I was wearing sensible shoes. You know, I was yeah. wearing no skid, very soft. You know, you talk to nurses who are on their feet all the time. Like, there's a cost to it. Yeah. yeah. 
nurses walk for miles and miles and miles. Oh yeah, they're crazy. I mean, nurses have have crazy shift schedules and insane steps per day. Yeah, but even that standing slowly starts to get to it. That's why, like, yeah, take you know, take your time. <clears throat> the benefits in the walking, the benefits in the movement, the benefits to you know, again, insulin response response after eating, the benefits to blood pressure and all that. A simple walk, even digestion, a simple walk does a lot more than standing. So I would tell people if you've got to focus on one, focus on that. Yeah, be comfortable when you work. Sit, make sure you're sitting properly and and efficiently and and safely. As almost ridiculous as that sounds, uh, but then but then you know make sure you get up and walk. Don't underestimate the value of a ten minute walk on yeah. the hour, every hour, whatever it is. But then also make sure you're getting in some zone two work and strength training as well. Yeah. Um, before we dive into the Q, the questions, also the cues that I got, the questions that I got uh, during this Instagram Q and A, could you just do a brief reminder of what is Zone Two Cardio, just for people who who maybe sure. haven't listened to the first podcast yet? Which, by the way, if you're listening, go listen to the first episode we did. The link is in the show notes. It, Alex covered it in detail, but just for for everyone listening, for a quick reminder, could you just tell everyone what Zone Two Cardio is? Sure. Um- background on the information on why it's called zone two that was from you know old research showing basically different heart rate zones different zones of intensity or percentages that roughly correspond to stressors on the body they correspond to what energy systems are being used how long you can tolerate it all of that kind of stuff higher zones represent higher intensity zone one represents a barely this is a warm-up type of effort. If you talk about somebody doing zone one, it's, you know, walking to the start line at a quick pace. If you're, you know, walking to work relatively quickly and you live in a city, that's zone one. It's not actually exercise. It's just your heart rate's up, you're moving a little bit, but it's very comfortable. You can carry on a conversation, all of that kind of stuff. Zone two is considered, for most people's purposes, the point at which exercise starts to actually become exercise. You start to sweat, your heart rate starts to increase, but it's still at a point where you can carry on a conversation. The critical line I always tell people is if your heart rate is moving to the point where you feel like you're actually starting to breathe deeper, you know, you're not just, you know, you're not just taking light breaths, you're taking deep breaths, you know, because when you sit there right now on any day to day, you breathe through your nose, you know, you're breathing, it's usually three to four light breaths and one deep breath. As you pick up intensity, it's two light breaths, two deep breaths, and it's one light breath, three deep breaths. When they're all, mm. you're probably starting your zone two. At the point when you can no longer control the rate of breathing, in other words, you can no longer speak in a 10 to 12 word sentence without having to stop, that's when it goes beyond zone two. That's mm. when into slightly more aerobic glycolysis, anaerobic type work. So that whole range from a practical basis right there represents an intensity of exercise that the body can handle a huge amount of. It has, <clears throat> it's very easy to recover from, and it still has profound cardiovascular and respiratory benefits to everybody. That makes total sense. Okay. So I, I want to talk about how like total frequency and amounts, because that was one of the most common questions you got, but I'm looking at a question that someone asked right now that I thought was very is very important and it's a good question. Someone said my runs are mostly at zone three and four. Why do you say zone two is better than three or four or even five? Okay, sure. Yeah. So part of this is also and before we get into it too much, I want to make sure that people realize that running zones set by heart rate may not necessarily be your personal zones. Mm. So everybody's zones may be different because as we know, everyone's max heart rate is different. 
maximum heart rates of 220 minus age is accurate for 70% of people. Okay. That still means that there are tens, hundreds of million people out there. <laughs> so if you're unsure what your zone two really is, do that sort of talk test and do a maximum heart rate test. Do both. And you may see that you what you think, what your watch is telling you is zone three or zone four may actually be zone two for you. That's possible. Mm, okay. So the other thing is when it comes to athletic performance and long-term sustainability, the whole idea of polarized training with 80% being zone two and 20% being like zone four, <clears throat> it's actually more like 85 and 15 or 88% zone two and 12% high intensity for really elite runners. The reason why that was established is, is observing these training programs and looking at how much stress an individual can take. If you're doing nothing but true zone three and four, the cost to the body, the stress on the body is such that other systems are fatiguing before you've really reached your optimum cardiac stress for the training. Mm, interesting. So what it's saying is like, let's say I run for three hours a week and it's all zone three and four. Let's take an example. Yeah, like I do 25 miles of running a week and it's all zone three and four. If I up that to 30 miles, I really start feeling beat up. If I up that to 40, I, I, I get absolutely crushed. If I made that more polarized and did a lot more of it in zone two and still did some in zone four, I could do a lot more miles of running per week and feel less stressed. I would have better performance advantages. I would have better cardiovascular. So it's if you had the choice, all those being equal for benefits between doing an hour of zone three and an hour of zone two, this is assuming complete recovery from each one. I would say the zone three would be just as good, if not better, but it's not all equal. <clears throat> an hour or two of zone three or four is going to have profound long-term recovery effects. It affects everything from you know orthopedic stress. There's actually such a thing as central nervous system fatigue caused mm -hmm. by there are a lot of carryover effects from that that may be limiting your future performance and may be making those next training sessions less effective. It may disrupt your sleep. It may disrupt other things. So doing a greater percentage of zone two allows for better recovery and allows you to maintain or increase the volume you do and still feel better and possibly even get better performance out of it. That is such a good response. I'm like, that one response made this entire episode worth it. I'm like, that makes so much sense to me because I think a lot of people when they work out, whether it's they run or whatever it is, they want to feel spent at the end. They want to feel tired. They want to feel like, oh, that jacked my heart rate up. But what you said, you, you said earlier on, you were like elite runners or elite athletes, they have like 88% of their training in zone two and 12% above that. It's Dude, that's an unbelievable amount of their training at a very low intensity. And and you take these average everyday people like myself, why do you think you should have more intensity than someone who's an elite level athlete? And it's because you're, you're basing your quote unquote successful or effective workout on how tired you are when an elite athlete bases it off their actual performance are they getting faster are they getting better are they more conditioned and this is why it's so dangerous to only measure your workouts based on how tired you are because all you, if you want to get more tired you just go harder and harder and harder until your body breaks down it, it's crazy too because i remember uh, where i used to train i used to live in north carolina i used to train at duke and you know i used to do laps around there's a, a you know three and a half mile trail out there 
And um, there would be literally Kenyan marathon runners, like elite level, who were there to do training. They worked at the sports performance lab. You know, <clears throat> I think Nike had uh, some relation to lab there. So there were always elite runners out there. Now, these guys would pass me like I was standing still, but they were still doing zone two. And you could tell because they were carrying on full conversations for the entire duration of their run. These guys were talking to each other. They were carrying on. They were, they didn't look, and they would run by. And of course, they'd be moving fast. When you get to that level of fitness, zone two is extremely fast. But still, the stress to them, they were carrying on conversations. They looked relaxed. Their form was relaxed. They were, you know, it was a comfortable, comfortable pace. That's how they did most of their training. That was the vast majority of it. That is the only way for good athletes to get in the amount of training that they need to really maximize those cardiovascular benefits and not just grind themselves into the ground. That makes sense. And, and that sort of leads me into a following question that I got from a lot of people, and I'll sort of paraphrase it, but to the effect of, does that mean that your zone two will change as you get better and more efficient as an athlete? Like as you get more conditioned, does your zone two change over time? Yeah. Yeah, it absolutely does. I mean, now the, the heart rate numbers may stay the same. Of course, they could change as you get older. It changes. <clears throat> Medication may make it different and all that. So, But all else being equal, as you, get, as you improve your cardiovascular fitness, your heart becomes more efficient. The stroke volume increases. You're pumping more blood each time. The, all the various systems that are responsible for cellular respiration get more efficient, greater mitochondrial proliferation, et cetera. You'll notice, not to mention the fact that your stride gets more efficient, you'll find yourself going faster and faster and faster and covering more distance as that level of stress stays the same. There's a, um, a system of training, uh, Phil Maftone, uh, who uses something that is somewhat similar. It's, you know, it's the MAF is, you know, Maftone heart rate. It loosely corresponds to like a high zone two heart rate. Um, he'll tell people to do nothing but that. I don't necessarily agree with that for good runners, but there are certain qualities to it that work. But the number of people who've done that system and say they start out at that heart rate running a 1045 mile and after years of it are running a 745 mile at that same heart rate and level of exertion, that's a profound difference. That's insane. And that's still their zone too. They're still out there carrying a conversation, running a 745, whereas before they were barely shuffling. And that is just from doing that. That's not even polarized training where they're doing higher intensity stuff to make them faster. Man, that's so crazy. And, and I've seen this firsthand doing the, the zone two work I've been doing. I remember when I first started doing the zone two, I was in zone two at, at about a three on the treadmill. I was, yeah. I, my heart rate was about like 129, 130, uh, which yep. is about like my lower end zone two. And, and it was fl no incline, just about a, a three. And I was, I was there. That's like, yeah. I was already there, which and I felt, I remember cause I was talking to my buddy, Mike, and I was like, man, this just feels like I'm doing nothing. Yeah. Like what, what is the point of this? But what was very interesting, I actually want to talk to you about how quickly you can see progress with this within a couple of weeks. I could increase my speed a little bit more. And now, dude, today I was going at a speed of, I was at about 5.8 on the treadmill and I was, I was at about 129 beats a minute. Yeah. So I went from a three to a 5.8, which like literally almost doubled my speed. Yeah. And my heart rate is still exactly the same. And this is over the course of about, about six months now or so that I've been doing it very consistently. But that blows my mind that yeah. as you get better and your heart gets more efficient, you can go faster and faster and faster while still staying in that zone too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's that whole thing that, you know, you're 
your previous max now becomes your warm-up. I mean, it is the exact same phenomena. And I, I think what, what happens to a lot of people, and the question I get all the time is they're like, well, I tried the zone two and I'm barely walking. I'm, I'm going for a fast walk and I'm already a zone two. Like, is that right? And the answer is always yes. Especially, and that's the thing, I work with a lot of you know strength athletes, a lot of larger athletes who are getting into this, and they may find that a fast walk is it. That's it for them. And mm-hmm. it's because I think, oh, you know, I, you know, here I want to get better cardio shape. I want to like, I'm going to go run a 10K. And here I am like shuffling along in a walk and that's going to be 80% of my training. Like, I don't want to do that. But again, it's like, <clears throat> you know, it's like somebody walking into the gym and saying, well, for this exercise that you have me doing, I'm doing 10 pound dumbbells and I want to bench 200. Like, what am I doing? But it's the same thing. It's like, hey, this is going to get better real fast. You just have to be patient with it. Let yeah. your system up let your heart rate get, all of those kind of things but yeah because th- that is always the question they say i've been doing this for a while and it's not improving and they start thinking they've got to push themselves faster and faster and faster oh it's got to be progressive overload i've got to go faster this week and you say no that's that's not how the body works like give it time like trust in it yeah you know it's it's interesting i i like to come up with analogies this I, I that's sort of how my brain works. I was in special education growing up and and that's sort of what helped me learn and, and just coming up with analogies. And I realized that in terms of tracking, like we there's no question everyone should track their weights in the gym when they're strength training. Everyone knows, yeah, you track your weights so you know if you're getting stronger, you're progressively overloading. And I realized not tracking your heart rate is the equivalent of not tracking your weights because your heart rate is that it's your way of being able to tell it. Okay. Am I improving? Like you can look at the speed, but if the speed is going up and you're not tracking where your heart rate is, you're not really sure if you're getting better. And that's why I've, I've been, so I got the Garmin, like, you know, the Garmin watch, but, and I've actually got a lot of questions about this. People said, what's your favorite way to track your heart rate? I want to get your opinion on that. I would just want to give my opinion just briefly on the on the Garmin. I really enjoy it, but like you and because I've been working with you now for about a month or two now. But when we first started running or first started doing cardio, especially a little bit higher intensity, it was very difficult to track on the watch. The watch that wouldn't pick up on it for the first sometimes fifteen minutes. So I got that polar heart rate strap, and that's been incredible. And that connects directly to the Garmin. So I've loved using that, and it's it's brought a new level of of enjoyment to my training and that now I can track things more closely. I love looking at all the graphs of everything. It, it's very fun for me. And I'm, maybe I'm just a nerd, but I really enjoy that. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's great. And you know, I'm, you know, obviously, like I said, with heart rates being so individual and all that, I try to tell people, don't worry about your heart rate when you're just starting out, you know, don't think I need to do 68% of my max, but as something to track, it is absolutely crucial. And like you said, it is such a great way to get real objective viewpoints on what you're doing. It's like looking at pounds on a bar. Yeah. yeah. The gym every day and just, you know, load up weight by feel and get a good workout. But when it comes down to it, you have to have some objective measure of what your body is doing. And it's such a great way to, even like you said, like show improvement and, you know, show improvements across the board as well. Like you may find when you're first starting out, a heart rate of 160 feels like death. And then you find as you get better and more confident and you improve your pain tolerance, which is something else I would love to touch on if you get a minute. Yeah, um, yeah. You can really, really notice your ability to perform at that is so much better. And it's so rewarding after a while. So so t- talk to me about what you wanted to touch on real quick. Oh, so the whole uh, pain tolerance thing. So this is actually another benefit of doing a lot of cardiovascular activity that I always like to tell people about as well. 
Um, endurance training, especially improved cardiovascular performance, is associated with improved pain tolerance and a reduction in perceived pain across the board. Interesting. So, so just to, you know, and you probably know a lot of this, but just in case anyone listening doesn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Two things I want to make sure people know is that pain threshold is at the, the level of discomfort at which you process something as pain. So in other words, this doesn't hurt, this doesn't hurt. Okay, this hurts. That's your threshold. Tolerance is how great of an actual level of pain you can tolerate before you decide you've had enough. Mm, okay. So uh, endurance exercise doesn't improve pain threshold. Improving pain threshold would be just not feeling pain, like take a painkiller or take something like that. But improved pain tolerance is your ability to manage discomfort. And there have been a lot of studies that show that endurance athletes have better pain tolerance than the general population. And of course, you hear that and you think, okay, well, that makes sense. Probably people with better pain tolerance are better endurance athletes. Cycling hurts, running hurts. <laughs> you can embrace the suck for a little bit longer. You're going to be a better athlete. But what's really, really interesting is that when studies have taken two populations, a control group and a training group, put the training group through eight weeks of high-intensity cycling intervals combined with low-intensity work, a lot of low-intensity base work, that group has shown improved pain tolerance across the board. Wow. So what is so profound about that is that the fact that exercise and even just doing zone two, even just doing low intensity work has demonstrated this improved pain tolerance and your ability to not only tolerate more pain, but reduce the emotional impact of pain is huge. And so that's mind blowing to me. Why, why do you think that is? What, what well, do you think is going on here? It's, you know, it's a number of things, actually. And so what's what's really interesting is if you talk about the difference between nociception or the physical side of pain and then the emotional side of pain, like, let's just say I take a pen yep. and I touch my finger to the tip and I'm, I'm hitting it pretty hard. That hurts. It doesn't yep. feel good. But I'm not emotionally upset by it because I know exactly what's happening. I can do this all day. It's not going to feel good. It's yeah. painful. But I'm not at all bothered by it. Now, let's say I was feeling that in some spot on the inside of my joint somewhere and I couldn't control it. Mm. That could provoke fear. It could provoke anxiety. It'll feel emotionally uncomfortable. The emotional component of pain there is big. So what a lot of endurance training does is it allows you through either associative techniques or dissociative techniques, which is associative is embracing the pain and saying, mm -hmm. I am in of this i'm doing dissociative techniques is like daydreaming while you're you know engaged in something uncomfortable what all of this is doing is people actually get better at using pain management techniques to manage discomfort the simple act of doing and engaging in cardiovascular activity cardiovascular training with any level of associated discomfort even if it's minor improves an individual's ability to tolerate and manage the emotional component of pain that, that is absolutely insane. It's that, <laughs> and it's fantastic too because research along these lines and individuals dealing with chronic pain. Yes, if you deal with chronic pain, it can be a big challenge to engage in any sort of physical activity. We know that, but being able to choose discomfort and manage discomfort. So not only do you get the cardiovascular benefits of exercise and the reduction in orthopedic discomfort and everything else. Also, the fact that your pain tolerance is definitively improving across the board, your mental approach and emotional approach to managing pain improves. All of that can have profound, profound effects for a lot of people who are dealing with this. So 
And I could see that having so many effects in your everyday life where it's just like it's just in the decisions you make in, in terms of your relationships, in terms of your relationship with food, your your like your your colleagues, your coworkers, what you're doing at work, your family, having this benefit could could massively change your approach to life. Yeah, it is. And, you know, I, I always hate talking about this at very first because it sounds like more breath is like, oh, my God, it's this magical miracle cure. And I mean, it's it's really not. It's part of an active process. But it's like anything else, you know, they tell you your ability to to choose discomfort and manage discomfort is so big. So, you know, you're talking about something, an individual who's dealing with chronic pain or who's dealing with, you know, I don't, I don't want to get prescriptive here, but you're talking about people who are just like, hey, you know what, that that sounds like something I could benefit from. It, it becomes another reason to say, hey, why not? Why not choose a little bit of discomfort here that has all these other benefits, including this? Mm. So, yeah. You know, I, you know, what's interesting to me is, and you know, you know, like I've been open about it for years. I was just, I was the powerlifting guy and the, and the strength training guy and the weightlifting guy. And, and now I'm, I'm more of the, let's do both guy. Let's lift, but also let's do cardio. And a lot of that is thanks to you and following you and looking at your work because you, you've helped me understand that a lot. But I, my initial question was, I, I wonder if in engaging in strength training elicits a similar type of response to that, like engaging in something uncomfortable could potentially help with your uh, pain management or, or pain tolerance. But then I've also, in addition to that, I was thinking the mental side of weightlifting is so different than the mental side of cardio. Um, and I think part of that, at least for me personally, is because I love strength training so much more than cardio. So for me, going to lift weights is like that. Uh, that's a pleasure. I, I love that. But going to do cardio, bro, I fucking hate. Like I really do. I really do hate it. But I've been doing it because the the benefits have been so clear with my blood pressure, with my jujitsu performance, with just even tracking all the data. I love seeing the data and being like, you're getting better, you're getting faster. Like the the goal you set for me to get the sub six minute mile, like that just makes me so excited to do. I still hate doing it, but I just it's for when I'm suffering through cardio, which I actually very much, I'm using that word deliberately, like I'm suffering while I do it. I very much see a different effect on me as an individual because it's not difficult to get me to go strength train. It's very difficult for me to actually go do cardio. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny too, because I still hate the process of cardio. <laughs> I love running. I love mountain biking. I love mountaineering. I love all those things, but I hate the cardio side of it. <laughs> I just don't like it, but it's such a, a prerequisite to doing all the stuff I want to do that I have to go do it anyway. And it's like, you know, I like the, the run I went for today. It wasn't particularly scenic. It was just, you know, up and down this, you know, kind of steep, big hill slash mountain. And it felt objectively absolutely awful. But same token, I'm like, hey, you know what? I There are a couple of things I want to do this summer. Knowing that I can do this a little bit faster and push myself a little bit harder every time is going to improve my experience when I go do something I really want to do. So it's it's that same kind of thing. And there is a certain aspect of, again, I'm choosing this. Nobody mm. is forced to take this next step. I am choosing this discomfort. I am choosing this entire god-awful experience of, you know, drooling out both sides of my <laughs> mouth. And, but it's okay because like this is you know this is all part of what i want to do and you know i know family history of heart disease and all these other issues i need to be doing it anyway do you have that you have a family history of heart disease big time that was actually one of the things that got me into 
doing a lot more cardio in the first place was really yeah it was um you know because i was i was big into lifting when i first started that's all i wanted to do and um you know again it was it was kind of a wake-up call first seeing how out of shape i was uh when i went for that like 5k training run and um you know then just thinking about family heart disease everything else i'm thinking God, you know i really probably should be doing something about this do you do you track your blood pressure do you keep is that something you keep an eye on how is that how's your blood pressure it's good. It's good. Um, it's always terrible when I go into doctor's offices. I get <laughs> white, white coat, coat syndrome. Yeah. <laughs> but it's funny because a lot of that is still left over back when I used to worry about it. Yeah. You know, I was going in there and I had high blood pressure and, you know, I would panic every time the cuff would come out and go, oh, my God, how bad is it going to be? And like, <laughs> Sir, it's like 180 over 120. I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm literally about to have a heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, is this normal for you? I'm going to, I'm like hyperventilating right now. Probably not. <laughs> but, you know, it's gotten better. And, you know, tracking it at home, it is. It's in the, you know, it's sub 120 uh, systolic yeah. usually most of the time. So it's fine. I mean, for me, that's kind of the sweet spot of where I want to be. Yeah, got it. Okay. That's, yeah, that's good. That's one of those things where a lot of people, you know, and I've told you, I talk about weight loss all the time. And a lot of people, they're, they're like, well, what can I track besides my weight? And I'm like, listen, if you really want to improve your health, you should probably track your blood pressure. It's such an easy thing to track. You can get one for 20 or 30 bucks off Amazon, get a blood pressure monitor. Uh, and it's such an, an important indicator of, of your overall health. And it's just like so many people die every year from high blood pressure leading to heart attacks or, or heart issues. So I was wondering, I figured you did, but I thought it'd be interesting to ask. Yeah. Um, all right. So we got, we got a I have literally thousands of questions. We're not going to get through all of these questions, <laughs> but um, there are a couple. So, so someone asked a question. I thought we could, you know, sort of extrapolate from this as well. They said, my easy run does not stay in zone two. It gets out of zone two, probably zone three, zone four. Should I bike instead? Should I run slash walk? Should I do elliptical? What do you think about different modalities of exercise in terms of zone two? Yeah, I mean, and assuming that it is, again, a true zone two, uh, assuming that, you know, they're really, they're failing the talk test at that point, and they really are even just on an easy run, they're getting out of zone two. It is absolutely fine to switch modalities. Um, I, honestly, that's how I train. That's how a lot of people I work with train, especially even dedicated runners who have orthopedic issues. Um, I say rotate modalities as much as you can. Get comfortable with them. Um, you know, if you want to, if you want to substitute bike, that's great. Substitute in biking. Just be aware that when you switch modalities, there will probably be a four to six week period where you the modality is so unfamiliar that you will probably not be able to push yourself hard enough to get a good zone two workout out of it. I tell people, if you're doing a new modality, take at least two to three weeks where you do a couple of higher intensity intervals on it just to get accustomed to higher output work. doesn't matter if it's a rower, if it's a ski erg, if it's an air bike, anything else. Do that for a couple of weeks just to sort of you know, get yourself into understanding what higher intensity is in that modality, then back off and use that as an acceptable way to get in your zone to work. But yeah, I'm 100% in favor of it, honestly. And in Got fact, it. rotating modalities can be the best way to actually keep it fresh and avoid any kind of overuse. Okay. All right, good. Um, I was wondering, in terms of total time spent, doing zone two. Uh, I don't know if you do it on a weekly basis or, or what time frame you use, but what would you recommend in terms of total time per week of zone two cardio? I usually recommend 60 to 80 minutes of actual 
practical zone two work as a minimum. And the reason I say practical is because I don't count warm up in that. Or in other mm. words, about the first five or 10 minutes of each session, I typically say you're still just kind of warming up. So that, why is that? Why is that not the first five to 10 minutes? Because I don't know the answer to this. I've been curious. Why, why don't you count that towards it? It can. Um, but part of the reason is usually at that point, uh, when you first start warming up, your movement is a little bit less efficient. Your heart rate mm -hmm. is going to climb. It's going to take a while to kind of reach that sustainable level where it's actually pumping efficiently. There are also a lot of other processes that are going on in your body when you first engage in activity. Um, when your heart rate first increases, it isn't necessarily shunting blood to the most appropriate places. Um, a response to exercise involves working muscles actually, like they're actually causing dilation just in the working muscles. Uh, circulation elsewhere is decreasing. Um, you know, it's there's a lot that kind of needs to reach an equilibrium as you start engaging in physical activity. Not only that, like on a cellular basis, one of the benefits of zone two is kind of improve things like improved glucose clearance. Mm. Um, what you're actually doing on a cellular basis is all the mitochondria, um, you basically need to elicit a minimum amount of energy substrate reduction. You know, all the ATP floating around in your cells to actually trigger the adaptive response, that ATP amount needs to slowly decrease. And the amount of AMP, which is the lower energy version like that, mm -hmm. you need to, that needs to increase. You need a certain period of time for that actually to start taking place. If you're only doing five or 10 minutes, you're not appreciably depleting cells. You're not appreciably reducing the oxygen in those cells. So you're not really triggering any kind of adaptation at that point. Mm. It's but it's not ideal. So if you, I say, look, it's going to take five to 10 minutes to actually get your circulation going, to actually start that whole cellular machinery running, where it realizes that it's, it can't just make do with existing stores, it needs to start circulating things in. All of that is going to take a good five or 10 minutes every time. So what Got that it. means, this might answer another question that I get a lot. People say, well, is it better if I do two 60-minute sessions or you know, six 20-minute sessions? Yeah, yeah, or yeah. So the answer is whatever lets you get those 60, 80 minutes minimum accounting for that warm up. So if you're doing a 30 minute session, that's only 20 practical minutes, uh, 20 practical minutes. Mm, okay. That, okay. That's the way I look at it there. Cause I, ideally I would say hundred to 120 minutes is, is a good place to be per week. 180 minutes is kind of where the benefits actually sort of peak at that point. Oh, okay. Well, you have performance benefits going beyond that. Absolutely. Okay. Percent benefits to performance, work capacity, everything else extends long beyond that. But reductions in health-related issues typically peak at about 180 minutes per week. That's not to say they aren't profound at 60 minutes, but it's kind of like one of those, you know, asymptotic type of curves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I tell people, look, if not counting warm-ups, you're getting in 80 minutes of quality zone two per week, you're doing outstanding. Okay, that's so. good. And so I know you actually got this question in your Q&A recently and someone else asked it here. Someone said if they're, if they're getting about like eight to 10,000 steps a day, should they still do zone two on top of it? And I, I, I heard your answer in you your Q&A. Could you just sort of relay what, what you said there? Because I think that's a, it was a very good question. Yeah. And uh, I think a lot of people could benefit from this, especially if, you know, they're a nurse or whatever it is, they do get a lot of steps, but maybe they're not getting any zone two in. Yeah. And, you know, it's to say that getting in steps is absolutely fantastic. And, you know, I think you and I both agree that 
getting in steps, eight to 10,000 steps, you are better off health-wise than the vast majority of the population in that regard. Um, the problem is with a lot of steps and you know walking at lower intensity is that you're not getting some of those profound benefits to uh, vascular elasticity, to cardiac preload, to a lot of those other things that are actually really making your heart and vasculature as healthy as possible. Uh, you're also not getting some of the more profound adaptations like the increase in certain enzymes in the cell that helps with glucose clearance, uh, fat metabolism, et cetera. For that, you still do need to try to get in some work that's raising your heart rate a little bit more. Now, people who work busy jobs, they're like, well, I'm, I'm getting an eight to 10,000 steps. But if I look at my heart rate data, you know, my heart rate's getting up to 120 or 130 when I'm going up and down steps and all that. Hey, that might be enough. Mm. But it's only low intensity stuff and you're just walking and you're on your feet. I would still say if those people endeavor to get in, they, you know, they can even err on the low side, 60, even 40 minutes of zone two per week. That is still going to be a benefit. And it's not always easy, but that's why it's so important to say, hey, alternate modality. The last thing that somebody who's on their feet all day may want to feel like doing is getting on a treadmill and running. But yeah. if they can get on an air bike, if they can get on a stationary bike, zone two, you can listen to an audiobook, you can watch TV, you can do whatever else, you can answer emails on it when you're doing it. If you can get yourself on an exercise bike and still get that in two to three times a week, you'll be golden. Bro, have you have you seen the show Yellowstone? Yes. I, that's what I've been watching when I've yep. been doing my zone two. I just finished season three. Don't spoil. I I just started season four today okay. doing my my cardio. But yeah, that's I just I watch that all the time. It's my favorite thing to do. It's amazing. Yeah, it's great. I mean, like I'll I'll either answer Q and A's when I'm on it, or you know sometimes I'll play like XCOM on my phone, like any number of things. <laughs> um, <laughs> Gage, man, sometimes you want to beat a mission. And I'm like, I've been on there for 55 minutes. <laughs> <I'm still. laughs> um, so let me ask you this. Do you, because someone, and someone asked, someone said, what is a good resting heart rate? I'm wondering, I want to know what you think about that. I'm also wondering, do you think resting heart rate is a good indicator of health? Can you use your resting heart rate as an indicator of health? And if yes, what is a good resting heart rate? And on top of that, would you consider zone two an appropriate modality to improve your resting heart rate? Sure. Yeah. So a reduction in resting heart rate comes from a lot of things. It comes from, you know, obviously stroke volume, how much blood you're pumping per pump, how efficient it is. You know, a heart can pump very quickly, but if it's not pumping very much blood, it's not taking in a lot, it's not going to be very efficient. Your heart rate continues to drop. Your resting heart rate continues to drop uh, because of a bunch of things. Improved stroke volume, um, decreased stress, decreased vascular resistance. You know, your your vessels are getting more elastic. Blood is pumping more smoothly. You know, your blood is, it, you know, it's, it's just, it's a more efficient pumping system overall. So anything in the absence of input from your autonomic nervous system and other stress hormones, cardiac muscle beats spontaneously contracts at about 90 beats per minute. So anything below that we know is input from the autonomic nervous system. Only reason mm. is just to say what a profound impact things like stress level have on your resting heart rate. So everything being controlled by that, it's not like your heart is inherently wanting to pump slower. It's all based on input as well. So when you get heart rates below 60, generally anything in the low 50s is considered very good. Anything that starts to get below 40, you get into the point where that's actually almost a clinical bradycardia. That is not necessarily a good thing. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but there are no real positive health benefits. You may have an individual who's insanely fit, 
fittest in the world who may have a heart rate in the high 40s, that's fine. Anything much below that typically is a combination of autonomic nervous system adaptations. Um, it can be, you know, uh, chemical hormone responses, all of those things that are dropping the heart rate that low. That's not necessarily associated with a healthier heart. So okay. I'll tell any heart rate between 45 and 55 as a resting heart rate is right in that sweet spot of health. Okay. So going to be higher than that. You can have people who take multiple medications where it's higher. You have people, you know, different heart sizes and cardiovascular systems, but anything like that is good. And yes, zone two work, you will see plenty. Zone two work elicits almost all the necessary adaptations to optimize heart health to the point where that will be reflected in a lower resting heart rate. Mm, okay. And, and would you say having a, a resting heart rate below 40, is it inherently dangerous or it's just, it? it's not necessarily bad if, if you have it, maybe speak to your doctor? Yeah. And just, just be, you know, speak to your doctor, just be sure your heart is healthy. Generally when people also get it that low, we know like anything else, just because a good amount of something is good doesn't mean more is necessarily better. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you've, you've probably heard things floating around people saying, well, too much running is bad for you. That's true. Too much cardio is bad for you. And in all the tests, it's been people who do 10 to 12 hours of high intensity running per week for years at a time. <laughs> that actually have worse cardiovascular outcomes than the general population. And that makes sense. We know that 12 hours of high intensity running per week probably has a lot of, you know, reactive oxygen species formation. You know, you're talking about free radicals, oxidative stress, all of that kind of stuff. All of that can start to negatively impact your health. So we know that that's a thing. Typically when you're seeing people with resting heart rates of 35, 40 or lower, you're talking about people who engage in so much physical activity that they've probably crossed over into that point where it's unhealthy. Mm. So, only reason I'm saying that is most people, if they have a resting heart rate of like 32, they know how much they're running. So yeah. they should probably get that looked at, you know, and just like anything else, like any individual who's pushing their body hard, they should get all their health markers checked. They should get checkups, get blood work done. Anybody who pushes themselves to the point where you see that profound changes to your physiology, you should be monitoring your health, even if it's something that's objectively good for you. So Got it. it's not inherently harmful in and of itself. It's just more often than not associated with other factors that could be potentially harmful. Okay. Yeah. That makes total sense. Yeah. Um, earlier you were talking about how health benefits cap out about 180 minutes per week of zone two, but you said that performance benefits, you know, get, you get more performance benefits after that. Where, where do you go in terms of performance benefits? Let's say you're working with someone who, who wants to go beyond health and they want to improve their overall performance for sports or whatever it is. How much zone two would you program for them? So I typically kind of go again by that percentage and tolerable percentage. So when I'm talking about performance and I'm doing polarized training, which is 80% easy work and 20% high intensity work, usually, interestingly enough, it ends up being their tolerance for high intensity work that caps it off. <clears throat> and the reason why that is, is when I say, let's talk about an individual who says 85% of my work is going to be zone two, only 15% is going to be zone four or higher. Zone four is really hard. Mm four is high intensity. If you think about the total number of minutes per week, let's say I'm doing 200 minutes of zone two per week. And on top of that, I want to do, oh God, I have to do math in my head now. Let's just, <laughs> I mean, 
but let's honestly say that that would mean that I have to do 40 minutes of high intensity work per week. Mm. That's not 40 minute workout at high intensity. That's 40 minutes spent in zone four. So if I'm doing two minute intervals, that is 20 two minute intervals at high intensity. Jeez. So typically I'll find that as long as I'm maintaining that ratio, their inability to perform more high intensity work tends to be a limiting factor long before I've capped out on their zone two. So at that point, you know, if they want to do 300 minutes of zone two and only 40 minutes of high intensity work, is that going to be good? It might still reap some benefits, but I would rather them maintain that ratio of high to low intensity work and just, you know, 10 more minutes of zone two, one more interval at zone four. Let's work up like that evenly across the board. Got it. So, okay. I mean, and you know, you look at these elite marathoners and you know, the amount of hours they're spending per week running, the human body can tolerate quite a bit. And most yeah. of that is low intensity. And at that point, it's like lifting. It's you're going to need so much work to get such an incremental increase, you know, year over year that you may find you have to add 20% more work over the next year, 20% more quality work to get 1% better improvement. And that's where we start to get to at that range. Got it. Okay. That makes total sense. Is, is there anything, cause I've already had you for, for an hour now, is there anything in regard to zone two or, or anything that you want to discuss or you think would be important for people to hear outside of with the questions that were asked already? Um, I'm trying to think of some of the more common questions I get. I mean, <clears throat> like I said, the, the things I find that people hit their head against the wall the most, um, some people want to know if like rucking or hiking is good to which I say unequivocally, yes. Um, if people want to add weight, like let's say they're more comfortable going backpacking or they want to incline walk or something. The thing I'll tell them is make sure whatever added weight you use is less than 15% of your body weight. Cause I get that a lot. Uh, okay. People say wear a weighted vest much more than that. And the actual stress of holding the weight itself tends to jack up your heart rate and rate of perceived exertion. It's not mm-hmm. the act. So I would say keep the weight moderate when you do that. Um, you know, I tell people always make sure you're wearing the appropriate footwear don't worry so much about, you know, running shoes telling you control or otherwise. Just get a pair that's comfortable and um, don't worry about zero drop or barefoot. Wear whatever's comfortable for you. Those are some of the biggest things I get. Bro, you, um, you might laugh. I, I've been wearing Yeezys while I run. <laughs> man, uh, you can wear whatever the hell you want. <laughs> you know, I, it's, it's kind of funny because, I mean, there have been days I've, I've done runs in like my deadlift shoes. Um, I, I think I once went for a bike still wearing my weightlifting shoes. <laughs> so I just forgot another pair. So I just had them on there. I was like, well, these are flat surface. They hold on the pedal pretty well. What the heck? So it's so were, funny. People, people really build things up. Like they're really major in the minors. Like, okay, well, the, what, what's the, the exact best shoes to wear? Or like the best weightlifting belt, or it's like, just wear what's comfortable to you and, yeah. and go get it done. It's like, we're even, I love the way you talk about, the the most common question I've been getting about zone two is unequivocally, how do you know you're in zone two if you don't if you haven't like measured your heart rate, you don't have a heart rate monitor, and you just break it down so easily. You're like, listen, use the talk test, twelve to fifteen words without taking a, a huge deep breath in. Like if you can do that, that maintain that pace. Just keep yeah. it simple. Yeah, and that's just it. I think because you know I. You know, like you said, you and I both love tracking data, and there's absolutely, absolutely a role for looking at objective numbers. But it's understanding that 
the human body is such a squishy combination of thousands of systems working at once that, you know, I, I still laugh when, you know, people talk about using things like heart rate variability to track recovery and all that. You know that every single recovery system is measured against the gold standard of recovery. The gold standard for recovery and athletic performance right now is a simple questionnaire given to athletes on how they feel. We are still trying to validate recovery metrics by simply against the gold standard of asking <laughs> athletes. So when it comes down to it, it's it's really sort of fascinating that these kind of you know, self-observation is still every bit. You should derive your numbers based on self-observation, not the other way around. Mm. And self-observation gives you those numbers. By all means, you can now use the numbers, but it's got to start with self-observation. That's where it starts every single time because in a system of a thousand different variables that are inputs, you got to look at the whole big picture and go from there. I love that. I love that. Dude, I, I have one more question and this one might take a minute. I apologize in advance. I know it's we've already had it been over an hour, but I I meant to talk about this and I forgot. You told me that you were looking at my recovery heart rate as a as a really good marker of my improvement or my my overall fitness and performance. Can you talk about that, like uh, not just about how high your heart rate goes, but how quickly it recovers and and sort of looking at that as a marker of performance and progress? Sure. Yeah. So heart rate recovery is like, let's just say I just go for a run or do a high intensity interval and my heart rate hits 180 and I stop. I, you know, I stop or I, I do a walk or whatever else. Well, as long as it's consistent, how quickly does my heart rate come down from 180 to let's say 140? Usually you'll track and say, I'm going to track in 60 seconds of standing still after an interval. How much does my heart rate come down? The reason why that is so important is because your body's ability to respond quickly to intensity, to exercise and everything else, your heart rate going up is, of course, an indicator of how efficient your heart, your cardiovascular system is. But it coming back down as you improve and you like, let's say, say you stop your interval if your cells are actually more efficient at oxygen transfer, if your heart is still very efficient in its stroke volume, if there's more vascular elasticity, all of that kind of stuff, and as those enzymes in your cells that are responsible for breaking down glucose and clearing waste products and bringing in oxygen and burning fat, all of those things are going to actually reduce the amount of work your heart needs to do to keep blood pumping to actually make sure those cells can recover. Mm. In addition to that, like the your heart rate is also responding to things like stress and perceived exertion. After you finish an interval, a more experienced athlete, I'm, I'm sure you've probably seen this. Have you ever watched an Olympian just run a mile or, you know, run a five? And afterwards, like they, they put their hands on their hips and they look down and then they stand up and they smile and they're walking around. And half yeah, the time, it's insane. It's insane. And I'm thinking... I go out and I run a mile, you know, much slower than these guys. And afterwards, I am literally puking up blood. <laughs> it was like my eyes are bleeding for the next 10 minutes. So a huge part of that is, you know, how quickly their, you know, their autonomic nervous system gets them out of that highly sympathetic state. You know, how those stress hormones, the stress hormones that release are far less. Their cells, their cardiovascular system is oxygenating everything much better. You know, all of that plays into how quickly they recover between sets. So subjectively, 
that recovery is a great thing. Objectively, it is a great way of tracking your aggregate, not only your recovery status, but also your improvement overall athletically and cardiovascular health, metabolic health, all those kinds of things. So is there, oh, sorry, sorry, keep going. I was going to say, so all you really need to track is in a proper program, a properly designed program, you'll either see a steady improvement in that, or at the very least, it's not going to get worse, even as your intervals get more intense. Okay. Is there, let's, let's just, and I know that it's sort of hard to work with, with a, you know, random examples, but let's just say you're working with someone who's, who's a relative to beginner, a relative beginner with this stuff. Would you look at like, hey, I, I want to see, okay, from we'll say their max is 180 and we're going to track it getting down to 140. Is there a certain amount of time you'd like to see it improving to a certain benchmark or, or a certain amount of uh, percentage increase or a point increase or time in, or increase or decrease in time that you're looking for to, to track their progress? So that's that's actually a very, very individual thing. And you can find charts everywhere because it depends if you're slowing to a walk. It depends if you're slowing to a stop. It depends mm. if you're sitting down. It depends if you're lying down. It depends if you do 60 second, 120 second. It's very, very hard to find kind of agreed upon benchmarks. And that's why the benchmark I always agree on is as long as it's getting better. Okay. And I, I hate that answer because it's such a cop out because people are like, well, is 40 good? Is 30? <laughs> and it's like, look, if you're seeing 40 or better at 60 seconds, that's a great place to be. Mm -hmm. Um if you're seeing 20, that may still be fine. So like I said, the, what, that's why I always tell people start tracking that early and start tracking it often and consistently because you, I would much rather an individual you know, start at 20 and go to 30 over the course of six months than an individual start at 45 and stay at 45 or even regress to 40. Mm. Like an individual is on a much better program for themselves than that second individual who is actually seeing a regression or no improvement. Got it. And, and you would say that the zone two work that they would be doing would probably have the most impact on that improvement rather than them doing more higher intensity work, right? Like making sure they're getting in their zone two work throughout the week as opposed to, well, I want, I, be, I think sometimes people think, oh, well, in this type of exercise, I'm getting my heart rate up really high. So I should probably do more of that. But are you saying that the zone two work is probably going to have a better overall impact? And obviously you use both, but in terms of still that 80, 20 or 88, 12 type model, the yeah. majority of your work should still be zone two. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's it because Obviously, like what's going to help you recover is both improving your ability to tolerate high speed, which may very well be doing interval work, but also the underlying cardiovascular adaptations and cellular metabolic adaptations that are responsible for getting your body back to normal. It's mm. a little bit like, you know, recovery in between sets, uh, you know, when you're lifting, like it's all those aerobic systems that are returning nutrients and clearing waste products, all of that. So, yeah. Uh, you know, proper amount of zone two, if you're feeling absolutely gassed between intervals, the answer may very well be doing more quality base work and low intensity work to improve your base, to improve that cardiovascular fitness to the point where your system lets you recover faster between high efforts. Man, it's been so interesting just personally watching my improvements with this because in jujitsu, I've noticed you know, you'll have these short bursts of explosive moments. It could be, it could be five seconds. It could be an explosive burst of up to 30 seconds, right? So like a sprint type moment. Yeah. And 
it's been such a psychological advantage for me to know that I will recover very quickly from that burst. And so sometimes I'll do that. Like I will strategize my game based on how quickly I know I can recover. So I will deliberately try to tire out my opponent knowing I can't sustain this pace forever. But if I do it now and they get tired, I will recover more quickly than them and then I can go again. And it's it's completely changed my game and mentality in terms of jujitsu. And it's I'm, I'm more patient, but I, I also know I can go really hard and then give me five, seven seconds and I'm fully recovered. And it's yeah. crazy. And you can hit them a couple seconds before they've recovered. It's really interesting because that is the kind of game you'll see that in cycling. You'll see mm. them break each other. And that's literally exactly the same thing that these world-class cyclists are doing. It's the same kind of fight. That's it's, so funny. I know I can tolerate this. I may be hurting just as much right now, but at the moment we both crack, I'm going to recover just a little bit faster, and I'm going to hit you just when you're not <laughs> go again, and you're going to break. And Dude, that is it, a huge part of so it. It's so demoralizing when you're going yeah. against someone, and and you know you're both tired. But that person, you they just have a little bit more. They've got a little bit. Of, and it's so demoralizing to see they're, they're, they're pumping out more. They're still putting more pressure on you. It's just like if you can get that mental edge and just make them quit, it's yep. it's the best feeling in the world. And it's in such an interesting component of my game that I never thought of before I started noticing this faster recovery. It's been amazing. Well, and that's the other thing that's so cool about it is you also know that when you're operating at a lower level of stress, your decision-making is better. Your yeah. Your operational awareness is better. So not only are they like feeling kind of mentally broken, you also know that their reaction is going to be a little bit slower, that they are going to get demoralized even faster. And that over time, eventually, they're, they're, they're gone. They've lost. They don't know it yet, but they've lost. And it could be, you know, they could still have minutes left in the bout and they've already lost. Yeah. Yeah. Dude, it's, I forgot to tell you, we, you've been doing the the oxygen tables with me, right? Where I like hold my breath for a certain amount of time to reduce the urge to breathe. So I was going up against a, a brown belt who's way better than me. His name is Thomas. He's a freak. He's unbelievable in jujitsu. He's infinitely better than me. Um, I, I don't stand a chance against him ever. But uh, today at open mat, we were rolling and and he got me in this choke. Um, but in my mind, I was just like, I'm just going to go as long as I can without tapping. Like I'm like, I, cause sometimes people get you in a choke and you get scared or whatever it is, or, or you, you're like, you feel like you're losing your breath super quickly and you just tap really fast. In that moment, I was so calm and I was like, I'm just going to, I'm just going to sit here and I'm going to try and defend the choke. I probably, I know I'm probably going to get choked out no matter what, but it yeah. took him over 45 seconds to choke me out. Yeah. And he was like, he was like, geez, dude, my arms almost burned out trying to choke you because, he, you know, he's trying to go as hard as he can for the choke. And I was just relaxed and I, I didn't feel the, the urge to breathe like I often do. I was just I was in such a calm state, which is funny when you hear like someone's getting choked out and they're calm. But like I didn't have the crazy urge to breathe. And I literally had the mental capacity to say, I'm just going to relax here and wait and try and defend. And it was it was one of those small little wins that you get, which again is yeah. funny. Like, how did I win when I got choked out? But it's a mental win to know that 
before I might have tapped out in in four seconds. And this time he almost burned his arms out trying to choke me out. It's just like it, it's so in all this stuff. Like I appreciate you so much. I've learned so much from you, and I I'm very excited to continue to learn so much from you. And I know my audience has learned a lot from you. And and these podcasts have been incredible. So thank you for everything you're doing. Jordan, man, it's 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 been really fun. It's been really enjoyable, and I really, really, really appreciate that. You know, again, somebody with your background and you know, going from strength background uh, to, to fighting to everything else has has been such a good ambassador for something that not only has benefits to athletes, but also just for like, I mean, literally global health. Here, it is such a it is such a thing that I can't. I, I'm I'm just I'm glad that word's getting out there, and you've been such a great ambassador for it. So a huge appreciation as well, man. Thank you, man. Could you just remind everyone again where they can follow you? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, Instagram, Alex.Viada, V-I-A-D-A. Oh, yeah. You were getting dark over there. I didn't even realize how dark you got in here. <laughs> yeah. V-I-A-D-A. Uh, I'm on Instagram. Um, probably the best place. It's where most of my content is. And my company, Complete Human Performance. They're on there as well. And, and C, uh, CHP has its own podcast, right? I'm actually going to go on it next week as well. So, so they have a complete human performance as a podcast. Make sure you check that out. I'm going to go on next week. I think we're going to talk about jujitsu, right? Yes, sir. Yeah, we will. All right. Awesome. Awesome, man. Thank you so much. All right. Yeah, absolutely, man. Good have job. a wonderful night. You too. That wraps it up for this episode of the Jordan Syatt Mini Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And Alex, thank you so much for coming on. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, please leave a five-star review on iTunes. It helps a ton. It really, really does help the the podcast a lot, which, by the way, we just passed 5.1 million downloads, so thank you for that. And if you'd like to join the Inner Circle, you can do that at the link in the show notes or www.sfinnercircle.com. Again, brand new app. It is unbelievable, super excited about it. We've got tons of new recipes. We've got comprehensive strength training programs for you. We've got some new challenges coming your way, and the new app, again, is just it's out of this world. I think you're going to like it a lot. So if you want to join the Inner Circle, you can do that at the link in the show notes or www.sfinnercircle.com. Have a wonderful day, and I'll talk to you soon.